Welcome to Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. Be part of a conversation between Graham Hood, champion fisherman, airline pilot and school dropout, and Ali Gonzalez, wannabe fisherman and holder of more useless degrees than you can poke a stick at. What could these two possibly have in common? The fact that neither of them have anything to hide. That's what. Mates in Courage. Take a listen. How you doing, Ellie? Yeah, I'm really well. Why wouldn't you be well on a day like today? Look at the view out the window. It's just magnificent. And for anyone listening, of course, and we hope lots of you are, we're sitting at Grace Glen, which is a little property in the border ranges of northern New South Wales, and we're looking out a window at the magnificent ranges shrouded in smoke from horrific fires just south of us. Oh, is that what's happening? Yeah, yeah, really bad. So have you been under threat here? Uh, Not really, but... You know, yesterday it was just you couldn't see a hand in front of you for smoke. Wow. Mm, really bad. But anyhow, you drove up this morning. You've driven two hours to get here. What was it like? It was a great run because I had to leave really early. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Are you an early riser? I am, yeah. I am. I'm an early riser. Yeah, I don't know what I am. My, my body clock's been destroyed after 50 years of flying. But, mate, I got up early and rushed to get here because uh, you told me you had something on your mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been I've been doing a lot of flying around the Pilbara. And the Pilbara's the iron ore region of northwestern Australia. Yeah. We've got contracts that want us to fly miners in and out for the fly-in, fly-out mining projects that are operating up there and all over Australia at the moment, so it seems. And, and it really hit me because recently I flew, you know, about 160-odd miners up to a mine, I won't mention, but up in the northwestern part of Australia. Right. And we pulled up on the tarmac and another aircraft came in to pull up at the same tarmac while um, our passengers were getting off. And the ground crew halted them all on the tarmac so the other aeroplane shut down so nobody was injured by the other aircraft. Yeah. And when I looked out the window, there were 180 men and women in pink reflective shirts all herded up like cattle and they all had backpacks over their shoulders and they were waiting and when the other aeroplane shut down they were herded off the tarmac and they were all herded into four or five buses and driven off and when I was cattle mustering that we've talked about before it struck me that these guys were just like cattle we used to muster them up get them all in a bunch and then we divide them up into those that were going to market and those that weren't, and we put them on cattle trucks and send them to slaughter. And I reflected on it all the way home. I was thinking about how their lifestyle is so similar to mine, being that I'm flying fly out as well. I, I, all for 50 years of being a pilot, I've spent probably half of my life in hotel rooms and the other half trying to reassimilate back into my family. And, and I'm hoping that truckies and other pilots and people who work away from home, miners, will hear this and maybe reflect on it a little bit because I think there's a lot we can learn out of all this. What are your work patterns like? Because I have to commute about two to two and a half hours to get to Brisbane, Mm. where I'm based, to work from where we live here, where we're recording, I actually bid to do four-day trips. I love to be home every night because I'm living in a happy marriage and that's really good and we hate being apart. But we've all got to work and make a living, and that's what I've been doing for a long time. So I uh, I fly out for four days, and I fly back in at the end of that four days and hopefully have two or three days off. 
So um, that's what my pattern's like. Now, at the moment, that works really well for both of us, but in my first marriage, it didn't work too well. I guess I need to describe what it's like to be fly in, fly out. Yeah, yeah. You pack your bag, you put all the things you're going to need for the next few days into that bag, and you've done a lot of travelling. I have. And you head off, and you see the family home and the family disappear in the rear vision mirror as you drive away. Mm Mm-hmm. You enter this surreal world where you you spend half of your life with people who are just acquaintances. They're not really friends. I mean, they're nice people. But at the end of the day, they're just acquaintances. And you feel disconnected from everything. And um, so you're away. I mean, in in my job, you get treated very well. You know, we stay in five-star hotels. We get picked up by chauffeur-driven cars at the airport. And people look at that and they say that's really glamorous. But you go to a hotel room and they're normally the same chain. And I've actually woken up in hotel rooms some morning where I've got to look at the stationery to work out which city I'm in because I can't remember. All the rooms look the same. Right. And then at the end of that, you fly home and you walk into a house where you feel like an unwanted house guest in your own home. Why? Because your family has to function really well in your absence and there's a machinery that starts to build in your home when you're away in your house i'm i'm going to use the word house because it ceases to become a home after mm-hmm. all and and you there's a machinery that builds up that functions really well with mum and the kids but when you get home you're like either an extra child or the fifth wheel and you know that you're interfering in a process that runs really well when you're not there and you get into the marital bed and quite often that's a strange place and quite often there's a six-foot concrete wall built down the middle of it and you start to feel like you're in a strange bed and you long for the day when you go back to work so you can be in another strange bed in another box somewhere and before long, before you know it, your identity becomes that of an ATM, an, an automatic teller machine that you exist only to provide income to support a family that really functions a whole lot better when you're not there. I can see just by the way you're talking and I'm looking at you, Graeme, that you really know this life. I really do. And are there mates of yours in the same industry that, unlike you, because you say that you prefer to be at home, you actually prefer to be away from home? Yep, they become so accustomed to, at least when I'm away from home, I'm in an environment that I can have some control over that's not damaging and, yeah, I've got uh, mates in the mining industry too who go through that. In fact, my son-in-law is involved in – he's a fly-in, fly-out miner. And I think about that and I, I think about the reasons that we go into this kind of lifestyle. And normally when you're away from home, the incomes are a lot better. The flying income's a good one. The mining income's a good one. Uh, trucking's not so good, but, you know, guys are normally paying for their rigs and they have mm-hmm. to keep on the road. They've got half a million dollars invested. Mm-hmm. I'm here for you guys on the road because I know a lot of you listen to this and um, nothing I'm saying is putting down miners, pilots or truck drivers or anyone else who works away from home. It's all about us understanding where we fit in the big scheme of things. And here's the downs- one of the big downsides of this. When you come home and you don't feel like you're really home, you're just in the house that you're paying for and that you're a burden on the rest of the family because they've become used to you not being there, Mm -hmm. you start to feel depressed. And sometimes you feel really depressed because you don't feel like you belong anywhere. Mm. You don't have a home. 
And the side effect of that, of depression, is that you do things to mask the pain of that rejection that you feel, of not belonging anywhere. Like what? Pornography uh, is a big one. Uh, drinking. Yep. Gambling. Mm-hmm. Womanising. Spending a lot of money to make you feel good. I guess a lot of that's easier if you're not at home. That's right. Yeah. You know, exactly. You know, so yeah. you're put in this environment where you can you can live in a fantasy world that isn't real. That you've doesn't got the money if you're in the right sort of job. Yeah, you got the money all right. Now, when you get really depressed, that your initial reason for going away to do this kind of work for many fathers and husbands was, you know, this is our way of putting ourselves on easy street, you know, we'll make this sacrifice for 10 years and then I'll be able to take an ordinary job, Uh, we'll own our own home, we'll pay off the mortgage, we'll educate the kids with the money. But because you fall into this terrible pattern uh, that a lot of guys fall into, you end up feeling really bad and you feel like it's all about everyone else and that nothing is for Mm -hmm, you. mm Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, your income gets converted into things like fancy cars, mm-hmm. big boats. Toys. Toys, because toys make you feel good, but they only make you feel good temporarily. And then after a while, the, um, the mortgage is due. Uh, the repayments on the, uh, the $150,000 car become due. You've got a garage full of toys that you can't use because you've got to keep working more in order to pay for them. Mm-hmm. And they become an even bigger burden. So you've got no time? No time. No time for your family either. No time for your family, no time for you, and you're on this incredible treadmill, and you know what? You just wither up and you die inside. And no toy, no amount of self-gratification will ever make you feel good enough, and you're missing out on the really important things, which I did for many years. I missed out on so much of my kids growing up, and uh, being in a good relationship with my wife, I missed out on establishing something that was real there. And we've talked before, Ellie, about the average Australian father spends 37 seconds a day in one-on-one communication with each child. So by the time your child is six years old, that child will have been spoken to by the television more in that six years than by you in its entire lifetime. And imagine how exacerbated that statistic is in the flying fly-out culture. Now, I'd imagine I've never actually been in a real flying fly out job. No. Sometimes I wish I had been for the money. But um, you, you go away for six or eight yeah, weeks yeah, at a time. I, I do, but I'd imagine that people in those sectors would have a lot of busted marriages behind them. They do. And a lot of kids that they don't speak to anymore. Yep, it's tragic. And I see it every day at work. And you know what? There's a lot of depression, severe depression. And I hear more about it in the mining industry. Men are really disconnected. Men and women are really disconnected in the flying fly at culture. And, you know, the whole idea of society is and, and living is actually that we are connected. And now we live in a world where social media and mobile phones and everything are our form of digital connection, electronic connection. But there's no face-to-face connection. We, live, we speak with our thumbs. We listen with our eyes. And none of that works anymore. It's just crazy. And we can't keep on living that way because our whole purpose for being a tribe is to be connected and to be living with each other. I hear men say on the aeroplane, you know, what are you you up to? Oh, I'm a flying fly-out miner. I'm screaming to tell them you're not a flying fly-out miner. You're actually a flying fly-out dad and husband because your real identity is in your family, not your job. And the mining industry gives guys big 
multi-million dollar toys to play with. I mean, mm-hmm. big trucks and mm-hmm. big diggers and big graders and and all that stuff really floats your ego. You know, you get into this amazing equipment like I do. I get into mm. an aeroplane that's worth, I don't know, $100 million. Um, they're trust- I, yeah, I wouldn't be envious of uh, big trucks if I were you. Oh, I guess I guess not. <laughs> in fact, my son-in-law spoke to me re- or sent me a text the other day saying I sent him a photo of me waiting for a, or of the view of out the uh, terminal window waiting for a plane to come in that mm. I was going to fly out. And he sent me a photo of a Pilbara uh, sunrise and he said, I'm about to start my day's work. And I sent my photo back. Yeah, here am I in the terminal about to start my day's work. And he said, I'd rather be doing what you're doing. I'd love to do that. And I said to him, well, I'll hang, the, I'll hang my uniform in the aero bridge. You get over here. It's just down. It's on gate 20. Go down there. My uniform's there. You take it and go and do it. I'm going home. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've had enough. And I love my job, but I've had enough. But the, the destructive power, the seduction of the income, you know, miners also get fed very well and they get accommodated in little boxes with air conditioning. And when we stay at some of these mine sites, which we do occasionally, there's one in particular we stay at on a regular basis, it's beautifully laid out. But as I walk around it, I see a modern prison and um, and I'm, I'm given a key to a box and I unlock the box and there's a bed stretched from one wall to another and there's a desk and there's a bathroom and a TV that can only fit above the bed because the only place you can actually watch it from is lying in bed. And you sit in this cubicle and then there's a gymnasium there for the guys and a swimming pool. It's all very flash. But I look at the I look at their faces and I look at the faces of their families who kiss them goodbye in the terminals and I think, this is just not working. These families should be living near the mine site. They shouldn't be flying in and flying out. They should be coming home at the end of every shift and being with their families. And um, it's that that really worries me because at the end of the day, you can have a garage full of the most expensive toys, Ellie, but if your kids hate you and your wife isn't connected with you, then what on earth good are all the toys in the shed? Then They don't mean anything. You're stuffed. You're stuffed. And it's too late to get off the treadmill and some of them are so stuck in the debt that's been created to mask the pain of never being around and not feeling like they belong. And the toys that they can't sell, they buy something for 150000 and the only way they're going to get out of the debt is to sell it for half its value. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the West, you know, the, the thing is if you want to buy a, a cheap four-wheel drive boat or caravan or camper trailer or whatever, go to the West because they're, everyone's trying to sell them mm-hmm. because they've realised that, you know, they've got a garage full of the best toys but they can't afford to pay for the basic things of life mm. for their families. And um, it's a treadmill that's self-defeating and destructive. And you've been there. And I've been there and I know what it's like and um, something has to change and we have to re-establish. What we have to do is accept that the best things in life aren't things, Ellie. If something has to change, how did it change for you? Boy, that's a good question. Well, I'm still living in that lifestyle. But how it's changed for me is that I make sure that I'm in constant contact with home. I connect with home. I frequently text and talk when I can to Michelle. And um, I try and catch up with my kids. And that normally happens when I'm away because I can use that time to try and connect. But um, I've realised that in the latter part of my life, I'm using the couple of years I've got left in this income to establish us for a good retirement. And we're both working towards that together as a team. 
and I make the most of every minute I'm at home. Um, I've actually got to a stage now where I don't have any more debt um, and I'm just working to save for our future and it's something I should have done right at the beginning. Because what's, what's the point of chasing this income for your retirement and when you get to that time you have no one to share it with? Gee, that's profound, isn't it? Oh, well, thank you. No, it, it, well, I'm, just, I'm just listening to what you're saying and it, <laughs> it's just, it, yeah. it... That sums it up, you know. Podcast over, thanks for listening. What on earth are we doing... You know what I said to a colleague once, you know, what do you do, um, what do, you do for fun? And he said, I don't have any fun, I've got kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him and he just looked really depressed. And I said, what's that about? He said, how can I have fun? He said, you know, they go to the best private schools, uh, they've, they've got iPads and iPhones and, and, you know, we've got to go to Europe for our holidays and they've got ballet lessons and soccer training and swimming lessons and music and all these extracurricular activities, and I spend every minute at home trying to make it all work. Mm. And then he says, I've got, to, um, I've got to work extra overtime in order to pay the bills. And I said to him, why are you doing that? And he said, what do you mean, why am I doing it? It's expected of me. I said, expected by who? He said, society expects that we do that. I said, what do your kids expect? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, have you ever asked your kids what they want? Mm. And he said, no, but I know what they want. They want all these things. They like all these things. Mm. I said to him, do you know that the average Australian dad only spends 37 seconds a day in one-on-one communication with each of his kids? And he said, I'd be lucky to spend 15. And I said, do you reckon your kids like that? Oh, they like all the stuff that goes with what I do. And I said, but have you actually asked them? He said, no, I haven't. I said, let me give you an example. If you had a box in each hand, in the right hand was a box that contained the big house you're living in now, the two BMWs in the driveway, everyone's got a mobile phone and a laptop. Uh, They go to the best private schools and uh, you go to Disneyland for your holidays every year in in the US or Europe and Dad's in their life 37 seconds a day. That's the box in your right hand. The box in the left hand has got you live in an average house in an average street. Your kids go to a good public school. You've got a couple of 10-year-old cars. There's a couple of mobiles and a desktop computer that everyone uses in the house. And um, you go to Port Macquarie, go camping just down the road every year and you have a great time on the beach. And Dad's in your life four hours a day. Which box do you reckon your kids would take? He said, I don't know. I said, well, which box would you take if you were a 10-year-old boy? And he said, I'd grab the the box in the left hand. So, But here's the thing, Graham. Obviously, you're talking as a pilot and, and you know the environment. But there's a, a heap of people in our society who aren't pilots. They might be truckies yep. and other industries, yep. you know, shift workers yep. uh, in the medical profession, yep. uh, nurses even, mm-hmm. uh, who are still chasing the dream and they actually have the material things that go in that box in the left hand. They live in an average suburban yep. home and they don't have the, the holidays overseas and, and all the toys in the garage, yep. but they're still chasing the dream and... Their families, uh, their spouses and their kids, and they themselves are being as neglected as the people who, who are living out of the right, you know, the box in the right-hand side, yeah. who actually have the, I guess, five-figure income, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's something that cuts across all of society. It does. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. We can't expect society to change. No. You know, we can't sit here and tell the, the miners not to go out west or the pilots to stop flying you'd be in big trouble if you told them that yeah you know uh, we can't tell the truckies to 
stop driving, stop driving and sell their rigs. Yeah. Um, so Tell what, the nurses to stop nursing. No, whatever it is. So what practical advice can we give? It's well, here's a, the thing. It's a way society is set up. It's it's our enemy, right? It's set up against us. The treadmill. Yeah. Here's the thing. We've got to know. We've got to step out of our denial. Why are we doing this? If we're doing it because we've got a high income and we just want to live the good life so that we live into the reality television view of the world, then we need to accept that that's the reason we're doing it. That's the real reason we're doing it. If we're doing it because we've got to work two jobs in order just to just to pay the rent, which so many people are in this country, it's mm-hmm. disgusting. Sure. You know, the dream of owning your own home for the average Australian is pretty much done and dusted. Forget about it. Mm-hmm. If we're doing it to keep bread on the table, then our heart's in the right place. If we're doing it just so we can look good for our neighbours, then our heart's not in the right place. And if we have to do that because we need to support our families to the base level of society today, then the time we spend at home with them has to be really focused on mutual benefit. It has to be focused on meeting each other's emotional needs. We have to make the most of every minute we spend together. And that can only happen when the family's on the same page. When dad comes home from two weeks at the mine site or a four or six day trip or a 12 day trip as a pilot or comes out of a week of night shift as a nurse, when they come home, they have to focus on what makes the family the family. It's the time they spend together, the quality time, turning off the television, turning off the devices, spending intimate one-on-one time with each other, enjoying the good things of life that can be had. And I know when we talk about people who are in Struggle Street who have to work long hours just to support the family. I saw a a post on computer one day and it was it was a, a cross section of families from different cu- cultures and countries mm-hmm. around the world and it started off as a photo of the family in the environment they lived in and on their table was the food that they consumed for a whole week mm. the photo started with a family in bolivia uh, they were living in a mud hut they had a, a straw mat on the floor there was a little fireplace in the middle of the floor and there were four pots around it there was a bag of rice and a few other bits and pieces in a basket mum and dad and four kids and they were all smiling for the camera Mm. and they looked like they were just happy Mm. and it went right through society and at the top end was an american upper middle class family living in a fairly substantial home with some big suvs in the driveway and on the table was a mountain of food packaged up processed food the photo of the family around it was four kids, mum and dad, and they all look miserable. And I suggest they look miserable because they haven't really established a connection. You know, sometimes just survival can get us to a point where we really connect with one another because we have to in order to survive. But when we live in, in an affluent society and we are surrounded with all the toys, we tend to become more individualised and more self-sufficient and self-reliant, and it's all about self yeah, I remember there was in, in Melbourne and back in early 2000s, there was a film crew went into the streets of Melbourne and they interviewed a lot of people on their way to work and they said, do you earn enough to meet the basic requirements of life? And, you know, 70% of the respondents said no, they don't. Then the interviewer said, what is the most basic requirement of life that you're actually missing out on? Number one response was a flat screen television. What does that say? Mm. 
First world problems. First world problems. Do we need a flat screen television to survive? I wonder if you went to the mud hut in Bolivia and asked the, the father of the house there if he had enough to meet the basic requirements of life. You know what I'd suspect he'd probably say, yeah, I, I make do. Mm. Do you think a flat screen television is high on his list of priorities? No. I doubt it. You know, he's just looking at his kids. And I also saw an amazing video clip through the week of a village on the top of a mountain in China, 3,000 feet up, and it's called Clifftop Village mm. in Chinese, of course. And the kids go to school once a month and they board because the journey is too hard. They climb up and down a 3,000-foot cliff face on rickety ladders tied to each other with ropes just to get to school. Wow. The journey takes an hour to get down and an hour and a half to get up. And the parents go down and collect their kids from school and they tie them to their backs and they climb up 3,000-foot sheer drops. And the kids are smiling and the parents are smiling and laughing. Must be a great school. <laughs> it must be. No, is it a great school or is there a great desire for these kids to have something better? Mm. And I reckon that's what it is. And they, to watch it brings tears to your eyes. It's just the most incredible thing. And they live on this plateau atop this rising plinth in the middle of this enormous valley in China. Well, what this is, is it demonstrates is a commitment to one another. You know, not a commitment to to self to self not a yeah. commitment to selfish things it's yeah. it's a commitment to your kids it's yeah. a commitment to your family yeah it's a it's it's a commitment to your community even yeah because the things we're talking about um, if I can expand them out a little bit these are important principles they're not just relevant to f- people who work in the mines or in for airlines or for you know, truck drivers mm. they're for everyone. Because what's the first reaction, typical reaction of a man under stress? What does he throw himself into? Work. Work. Workaholic. Right? And I've been there, and I wish I'd had the income that goes with the uh, switching yourself off to the family, as, yeah. I, as I've done in the past, yeah. and just zoning into work and, and working long hours and trying to get all my meaning and self-importance out of that because mm. then I feel I'm, I'm achieving something mm. when I feel I'm not achieving anything at home. Yeah. And so you just switch off and you just focus on that. And it, it doesn't matter what job you're in, but men are really, really good at that. And, and once you're in that mode... It's the same as being a fly-in, fly-out dad, isn't it? Yeah. It's exactly the same. Yeah. Except you're picking your your roster, basically. Yep. Exactly right. And you can feel completely alone in your family, at home with your family, because you're not connected. This is particularly relevant to me because I actually work from home. Now, working from home is really interesting because um, my wife doesn't work from home, and when you work at home, uh, let's just say you're at home, so... You know who does the groceries? Who does a lot of the chores? Well, you have to on top of, on top of your normal work. Mm. It requires some commitment and, and organisational skills, and it's got its own its own challenges. Not to say that the missus doesn't you know help as, as much as she can. You know, she does. It, it's challenging, but you know what I tried to do to make sure that I was involved in my family life. And this might sound really weird, is I actually set up my workstation at the kitchen table. I've got a standing up desk there that I plonk on on the end of our kitchen table, mm-hmm. a little dining area beside the kitchen. I know. Well, I've eaten at that table. That's it. Which means that uh, I'm right there at the hub of everything that happens in you know in my family. 
Mm. If my wife comes out there to prepare a meal, I'm there, I can talk to her, she can see me, I can see her, or my kids have just left home, uh, the last one just went. Yeah. Um, but when they were there, you know, they're always around. And you know what I discovered? Is that even though I had intentionally plonked my workstation right there in the, in the hub of the home, I was still really good at switching off. Yeah. And not even hearing or conversations of being aware of what was happening, but zoning in on what was on that screen and, and, and my work. You know, I've realised that about myself, and I, I try to take intentional steps to, you know, if, if my wife is there or any other member of my family, to make sure that I'm engaged with them and not with my work. So there's another end of the, of the whole scale of this stuff we're talking about. What happens to you when your office is your home I mean, I love getting back to Brisbane Airport at the end of a four-day trip mm. and I look forward to the two-hour drive because I'm leaving work behind me and I'm going home. But in your situation, you're living in work all the time. It's very challenging. How do you switch off? I have to very intentionally switch off. Intentional. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. Intentional. It, it's word. really hard mm. because in a, in a sense, work is easier than working on my relationships. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I love these conversations. That's right. But that's the reality. And so the default position becomes work. And, and I have to very intentionally switch off. And not when I'm burnt out either. Yeah. Because, you, you know, your brain switches off once you're burnt out. Yeah. And then we want to zone out and we have no energy left for, for relationships, for our family. So it's, it's a challenge, Graeme. It's really a challenge. Isn't that probably the same thing that happens to these fly-in, fly-out dads that you're talking about in the mm -hmm. industries you've been mentioned? Yep. When they come home, they're stuffed. They're, yep. they're bone-tired. They are. They haven't got time or energy. or They're hoping to come and relax and be loved and be pampered and, and whatnot. But yeah, I'm on my days off. I need yeah. to chill, you know. And here's the other thing. You come home from a big trip like that, and I used to gear my family up to give me 12 hours to come home after I walked through the door. Give me 12 hours to come home. And I, I used well, You've got to nick off again. That's, then, then that's right. You've got to go and pack your bag. In fact, I'll, I'll have, as soon as we finish this chat, I'd better go out and pack my bag and get ready to go again. But you know what? There's a couple of good words that have come up. The first one is intentional. We've talked about the problem. Let's really start looking at the solution. For me, the solution is creating an environment where your family hate to see you go and they can't wait for you to come back. Now, that works both ways. That works for mutual benefit. That works for your benefit as well. Because when you go to work, it should be, well, I've got to go and do this and I've got to get back. But if you go away mm. and you feel relief when you step on the plane to go to work and as you're flying home, you'll feel like you're walking on eggshells. What am I going to walk into when I open the front door? And if your family is at home walking on eggshells too because, oh, what's he going to be like when mm. he comes home? How's that healthy? That's not healthy. No. So we have to focus. You know what? Every day I ask myself, how can I make my wife feel more love today than she felt yesterday? Mm. I am intentional about thinking about what her emotional needs are. Mm. Now, when I do that, it creates an environment for her to do the same for me. Mm-hmm. And she will be thinking, well, I'm away thinking, what can I do to make her feel more loved when I get home than she did when I left? She'll be thinking, what can I do to make him feel more welcome and, and loved at home so that he doesn't want to leave? 
before long, you start to think, you know what, it's the pits. Us separating every month is the pits. What can we do so we don't have to do this anymore? And then you sit down and you intentionally work through a budget. You intentionally sit down and write down what your common goals Mm -hmm. are for the future. You work out what's important and you might set a target. You might say, look, I'll do this for another two years till the kids are educated Mm -hmm. and we don't have to pay the school fees or we should have the mortgage paid off in five years. Mm -hmm. Let's as a team focus on getting that done and then we're free of the treadmill and we can actually come back to a normal life where we can just live and exist and be happy in each other's Mm. company. And I think we need to develop our relationships so that they're resilient for our times away. Mm. And our kids and our wives, our spouses should be embracing the day that we return home as a day of joy and just being together and doing the things we all love to do Mm. together. And there might be a boundary like, you know, I've just come off night shift Mm -hmm. and um, it's great to be home, but you want me energised, so give me... Give me 24 hours or 12 hours to have a good sleep and mm. get back into the groove and start planning some things that you want to do together. It shouldn't be, I can't wait to get home so I can take the boat out and go fishing with the mates because it's the only chance I'll ever get to use it and I'm paying through the nose for it with interest rates and everything. It should be about, what what's the week going to be when I get home? Let's have a lot of fun. Sure, you'll come home and there'll be a list of things that haven't worked while you've been home, while you've been away. There'll be a list of things that probably need to get done. Get them done. Mm -hmm. If you're on a good income, get someone else to do them. Mm. If you're not, get those things done or put a plan in place to get them done over a period of time so that everything's fixed. But allow each other the space to come back together at the end of that time and just speak to each other, communicate with each other. How are you feeling? A great question we use with couples that we work with here at Mission Serenity is, Honey, on a scale of 0 to 10, how full is your love tank? How loved do you feel at the moment? And if the answer is 7 out of 10, you might think, well, that's not too bad. But then we encourage them to say, what can I do to help you make it a 10 out of 10? What can I do to help you fill the tank? And you might get a response like, I'd love it when you got up in the morning if you just put a load of washing on for me before you go to work. That would really help me in the day from her. And it might be from you. You know, I'd, I'd feel totally loved if you just gave my neck a rub at the moment because I'm really stiff and sore. And before you know it, they, we start to work out what makes each other feel loved. Mm. And we focus on those things because that's really great. Having a spouse whose love tank and children whose tank is totally full is such a joy to the giver. You know, they, there's a saying in our, in our society, happy wife, happy life, And there's a lot of negatives to that, but I'll tell you what, there's a lot of positives as well because when your wife and your family are happy, you do feel like the king Mm. and you do feel like you're doing a good thing. Well, when you told me you wanted to talk about flying fly-out dads, I thought to myself, where the heck is Graham going with this? Because I I can't relate to that. I'm not a flying fly-out dad. (laughs) But I, I can see after our chat that when you take an extreme environment like that, it really... It's the pointy end. It highlights the, the issues that, that really apply to any relationship and, and the fulfilment of, of any man, I yeah. guess. Yep. And so, yes, I've got a lot, a lot out of that. And I did too. And, and um, I want us all to think about that. Mm-hmm. I want our listeners to really think about what's important in life and where, where we need to focus our energies. Most of us work for big corporations doing the fly-in, fly-out stuff, and they're doing pretty nicely. Mm-hmm. out of it and the people who own them and the, the shareholders are doing pretty nicely but they're doing it at our expense 
and um, we have to refocus where our energies need to be placed for our own happiness. You know, we've talked about it a lot, Ellie. It's really important that we live for a good funeral. If we want a good funeral, it means we've got to live a life where we're remembered and that we will never be remembered for how much money we had in the bank or how much to- how many toys we had in the garage. We're going to be remembered on our relationships. Mm. And uh, I thank God for my relationships. I thank God for my relationship with you. And me too. Once again, I've learned a lot from you, Graham. And I've learned a lot from you, Ellie. Why? Because we're just talking about the real stuff. Yeah. And I look forward to next time we do it. That's it. And in the meantime, will you please take care of yourself? What do you mean? I worry about you. Why? I just want you to look after yourself because I like having these chats. That's all right. We'll do a few And when, more. Are, you, when are you going to take me fishing again? Oh. Don't bring that up, all no, right? Yeah, okay. Don't bring that up. You're just stirring. Catch you later, eh? See ya. See ya, mate. Bye. Mates in Courage. Brought to you by Good News Unlimited. To sign up for Graham and Ellie's daily spiritual message emails about recovering from addictions, hurts and hang-ups, visit goodnewsunlimited.com. To book Graham and Ellie for talks, get in touch at the same website. And if you're troubled by anything you've heard, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or an equivalent service in your own country. Thanks for listening. Mates in Courage. Catch you in the next episode.